number two. Would you open your Bible to Matthew chapter 12? Matthew chapter 12. This one will be a little longer than my previous one. Matthew chapter 12. We began at verse 9 this week. As you know, we're continuing our exposition sequentially through the Gospel of Matthew, and we land on verse 9 this morning. And we will work our way through to verse 14 with some other text of Scripture that we'll uh, employ as we seek to, by the grace of God, uh, explain this passage of Scripture for our edification. Matthew chapter 12, let me read the verses at this point. Departing from there, he went into their synagogue, and a man was there whose hand was withered. And they questioned Jesus, asking, Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath? so that they might accuse him. And he said to them, What man is there among you who has a sheep, and it falls into a pit on the Sabbath? Will he not take hold of it and lift it out? How much more valuable, then, a man than a sheep? So then, it is lawful to do good on the Sabbath. Then he said to the man, Stretch out your hand. He stretched it out, and it was restored to normal like the other. But the Pharisees went out and conspired against him as to how they might destroy him. A subject for these verses this morning is the Lord of the Sabbath, part two. The Gospels are a record of the power and authority of the Lord Jesus Christ over the created order. Whether demons, uh, the forces of nature, sickness, or death, they all uniformly submit to his... His authority is revealed in the spiritual realm as well. He forgives sins of repentant sinners. Any sinner who will come in faith to him, acknowledging their sin, he will in grace forgive them, restore them, renew them, and make them God's own child. The Sabbath, as part of the spiritual realm, is no exception to the rule and authority of the Lord Jesus Christ. He asserted in verse 8, you recall from last week, here in the 12th chapter, for the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. To claim to have authority over a divinely instituted ordinance is tantamount to avowing equality with God. To put it another way, it is a claim to deity. To say that you have authority over the Sabbath is to point blank say, I am God. The implication of such a claim being that he can determine its use. That is, he can interpret its application to the life of people. After all, he is the Lord of the Sabbath. He is the one who designed it. He is the one who created it. He is the one who instituted it. Therefore, he can determine how it is to be observed. We see this reality in the first incident regarding the Sabbath. Remember last week in verses 1 through 8, we looked at the reality there that Jesus was the interpreter of the use of the Sabbath, the seventh day. He uh, used arguments in those verses to demonstrate that what he was doing or his disciples were doing and what had been done historically in Israel from the Old Testament was consonant with God's will. It wasn't a contradiction of God's will. In the second incident, the one we're looking at this morning, regarding Jesus, the Pharisees, and the Sabbath, he demonstrates his authority over the Sabbath by his power. He heals a man. We just read that. 
the second incident that we'll look at, it begins with a question asked by the Pharisees. And I've given this, this, this heading a disingenuous question. A disingenuous question. Now, in the text in verse 9, uh, the clause departing from there, that is from the grain field, fields that we saw uh, last week in verse 1 of chapter 12. And you notice it says, he went into their synagogue. On the surface, that doesn't seem to tell us much. But when we compare other texts, we understand something about Jesus' practice, his ministry. His practice was to attend synagogue services in keeping with the priority of his ministry, and that priority was teaching. He went there so he could teach divine truth. He was a teacher. He was not an entertainer. He taught people, and the Scripture is really clear about that. In Luke, for example, there are a number of texts that talk about him entering the synagogue so that he might teach the Word of God. That was an important aspect of our Lord's ministry. And when we teach the Word of God, we resemble Him. In fact, people need the Word of God, do they not? There is no substitute for the Word of God. If you're not getting the Word of God, you're not getting the food for your soul that you need. You need to be fed. You, you need the Word of God. You ought to always seek to hear the Word of God proclaimed and taught. And Jesus, God incarnate, the Word incarnate, went into the synagogue and he taught. And that's what he did in the synagogue on this very day, this account. He was there and he taught the Word of God. And this was another um, Sabbath day. It wasn't the same one that's talked about in the first eight verses. Luke chapter 6, verse 6 tells us this. We notice in the congregation there was a man with a withered hand. You see it in verse 10. Luke, who was a physician, and because he was a physician, he would notice this. He said it was a, the right hand. Wouldn't you know it? A doctor would notice that. And it was withered. Literally, the word in the original means dry, means lifeless. The man's hand was atrophied, uh, because of paralysis. And this handicap perhaps uh, impacted his life in terms of his working life and maybe other th things. And here's the disingenuous question that is posed to our Lord, who had no doubt concluded his teaching at this juncture, and they said, Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath? <laughs> the reason for the question shows that they weren't sincere. They weren't interested in divine truth by which to live their lives. See, so how do you know that? Oh, well, I know the Pharisees. See, the, the bottom of the verse says, so that they might accuse him. You know them. It was disingenuous. It wasn't sincere. They didn't really want to know that. And moreover, Jesus had already told them about the Sabbath and what God required. Remember back up in verse 7? But if you had known what this means, quoting Isaiah 6.6, 6, I desire compassion and not a sacrifice. They were wholly unaffected by Jesus' teaching that God desires compassion and not sacrifice. 
They heard the word. They heard the teaching of the word, but it just went in one ear, as it were, and out the other. Be mindful. Don't do that. Don't be a person who hears the word of God and it just goes in one ear and out the other. But that's the passion that God has for men, for human beings. According to Luke 7, 6 rather, verse 7, during this time they were watching him closely to see if he would heal. You know, they, were, they were looking, they, they wanted him to do it. They, they knew that Jesus could heal. They had seen his divine power at work in delivering people from all manner of afflictions and infirmities. There was, there was no doubt about his power to deliver people from their afflictions. Peter, in the first sermon in church history, said this in Acts chapter 2, verse 22, Jesus the Nazarene, a man attested to you by God with miracles and wonders and signs and which God performed through him in your midst, just as you yourselves know. Jesus performed miracles and wonders and signs, supernatural activity. All over Palestine, wherever he traveled, he was doing that, healing people, and people in Israel saw it. God attested Jesus by those things. He validated him as Messiah. And so what that tells us here, these Pharisees, seeing his miracles, seeing his wonder-working power, they understood who he was. They knew of his power. Nobody could do what he did unless he was indeed Messiah. Jesus' ministry was widely known by leaders and rank and file in Israel. So the fact of the matter is, they wanted Jesus to heal on the Sabbath. Get this. Now, they're all up in arms about, you got to keep the Sabbath. But what they really wanted him to do was to break the Sabbath. They wanted him to violate it so they could condemn him. That's why the question was disingenuous. It wasn't a sincere one. They wanted to accuse him. They wanted to condemn him. They wanted to eliminate him. These are religious people. Synagogue-going people. Claim be worshipers of God people. But they wanted to kill the Son of God. Their hypocrisy knew no bounds. So after a disingenuous question, there is Jesus' turn to respond, a corrective analogy, a corrective analogy. And he said to them, what man is there among you who has a sheep? And if it falls into a pit on the Sabbath, will he not take hold of it and lift it out? Previously, Jesus' arguments, we saw this a moment ago, I mentioned it, there was permissible on the Sabbath to do certain things and he used scripture to do that he even told them related to the temple that something greater than the temple is here speaking of himself verse 6 you remember that God himself is there Jesus himself God is present greater than the temple 
And we already saw where it says that God's desire was compassion, our mercy to men. Now, Jesus, he uses an analogy to instruct them, the analogy of rescuing a ship, a sheep. He says, in effect, this is what you who are sheep owners would do on the Sabbath if your sheep was trapped helplessly in a pit. You wouldn't leave it there. You would not take, wouldn't you take hold of it and lift it out? They were all, they heard that, and the obvious answer is yes. The hypocrites. They had rescued their ship, their sheep. I don't know why I got ship on my mind. S H E, not S H I. Okay. There's a difference. It is permissible to help sheep on the Sabbath. How can it be wrong to help a human being on the Sabbath? See their inconsistency. They're hypocrites and they're inconsistent. And Jesus zeroes in on it with this analogy. And then our Lord moves on to verse 12 when he says, how much more? The words how much more, that formulation is... um, an argument from the lesser to the greater. How much more valuable than a sheep, than, uh, valuable than a man than a sheep? Man is more valuable than a sheep than any other creature on the planet because man is made in the image of God. Genesis chapter 1, verse 2. Chapter 1 and 2. Being made in the image of God links man with ruling and subduing the earth, which includes the animal kingdom. Genesis chapter 1. It says this. Show this. Verse 26. Then God said, Let us make man in our image according to our likeness. And let them rule over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the sky and over the cattle and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. There's a word there that says rule over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the, uh, the sky and over the cattle and over all creeping things. So there is this rulership that man has. The text speaks of what man is to do. His being made the image of God is a function. He functions in a role of a sovereign over the animals. Just as images are statues, statues, statues re- represented deities and kings in the ancient Near East, so man as the image of God was created to represent God himself as a sovereign over all creation. Man is stamped with the imago Dei, the image of God. No animal bears the image of God. Man is unique on the planet. So you need to understand that. And it seems to me, this is kind of off topic a little bit, but I need to say it. It seems to me sometimes people almost think that animals are somehow equal to men. They're not. I don't care how much you love Fido. Fido is not your equal. <laughs> Amen. Amen. Fido is a dog. 
and Fido's going to die, and that's going to be the end of Fido. But you are made in the image of God. You are the ruler of Fido. You need to understand that. You have an immortal soul. You're going to live somewhere forever. You are capable of having fellowship with your creator. No dog can do that. Fido doesn't get alone and pray. Amen, sister. <laughs> you don't stand who man is. That's, that's why Jesus says, how much more valuable than a man than a sheep. And the Pharisees knew this. But sadly, they treated animals better than men. That's awful. Remember that too, by the way, when you treat somebody. Remember, remember that they are made in the image of God. That's who you're dealing with. Image bearer. Now, notice what Jesus says here. Bottom of verse 12. So then, it is lawful to do good on the Sabbath. Our Lord, of course, draws an inference or a conclusion from what he just taught. He, he wanted to affirm that you can do, if you can do good to a sheep, then you can do good to man on the Sabbath. Now, let me explain. Doing good in this context means showing mercy. And the reason I say that is because up verse 7 again, the word compassion or mercy. And I'm going to tell you something. God is really big on people being merciful. Divine revelation elsewhere makes it clear that he, in fact, is more concerned with doing good and showing mercy than with fastidious observance of religious ceremonies and rituals. He is more concerned with doing good and showing mercy than with fastidious observance of religious ceremonies and rituals. I want to show you that. Turn with me in your copy of the scripture to Isaiah chapter 1. Isaiah chapter 1. And I want to take us a little look here at Isaiah and illustrate this, show this, God's attitude with respect to uh, ceremonies and rituals, God-ordained ceremonies and rituals, and his preference for mercy and doing good, doing what's right. Isaiah chapter 1, if you look at verse 11, where we'll begin. Isaiah 1.11 says this. What are your multiplied sacrifices to me? Says the Lord. I have had enough of burnt offerings of rams and the fat of fed cattle and I take no pleasure in the blood of bulls, lambs, or goats. When you come to appear before me, who requires 
of you this trampling of my courts. Bring your worthless offerings no longer. Incense is an abomination to me. New moon and Sabbath, the calling of assemblies. I cannot endure iniquity and the solemn assembly. I hate your new moon festivals and your appointed feast. They have become a burden to me. I am weary of bearing them. So when you spread out your hands in prayer, I will hide my eyes from you. Yes, even though you multiply prayers, I will not listen. Your hands are covered with blood. Wash yourselves. Make yourselves clean. Remove the evil of your deeds from my sight. Cease to do evil. Learn to do good. Seek justice. Reprove the ruthless. Defend the orphan. Plead for the widow. In the A portion of verse 11, what are your multiplied sacrifices to me? Commentator Moitier says this, what are they to me? God says, I have had enough of burnt offering. They add nothing. Verse 11, the bottom of verse 11, Isaiah 1, blood is talking about the sacrifices that they would bring. So God is complaining through his prophet about his people and their religious devotion, their ceremonies and their rituals, all divinely ordained. Yes, they were to do it, but they were doing it the wrong way. God said, I can't bear it. His attitude is plain here. He says, enough of that. Are you trampling my courts? The bottom line in Judah at that time was this. An unholy alliance of religious duty and personal iniquity. God does not accept religious activity while simultaneously there is unholy living. He says, don't come before me with all your whatever and think you're worshiping me, but you're living sinfully. He says, I don't want that. I, I can't bear it. Stop it. Proverbs 15, verse 8 says this, The sacrifice of the wicked is an abomination to the Lord. But the prayer of the upright is his delight. Do you not know when you get on your knees and you're right before him, you confess your sins, you're right with people, you're right with God and people, then God says, I, you know, I delight in that. Your prayers, I listen. You notice in verse 15 in Isaiah 1, God will hide his eyes even though you multiply prayers. You can spend the whole day in prayer, but you're not clean. Dealt with your sin, God says. You're wasting your time. I'm not listening. You see, it's very important, brothers and sisters, to understand God's view. If we want him to hear us. We want his blessing. We have to be holy. Well, it's true for them in their gathering. It's true for us in the church. 
exactly the same way. God's holy. He expects his people to be holy as well. So we've seen a disingenuous question, a corrective analogy. And we want to look at a demonstration of lordship. And we'll see verse 13 where it says here, Then he said to the man, Let's stop at the comma. There are parallel accounts. All, all the synoptics have uh, this same account. They have a different order by, according to the author's handling of the literature. And in Mark chapter 3, that parallel account, in verse 4, Jesus said to them, Pharisees, is it lawful to do good or do harm on the Sabbath? To save a life or to kill? Oh, but they kept silent. You may wonder, why don't they speak up now? They're always yammering about something. Asking him questions, he asked them why. And they were closed-mouthed. Because, see, Jesus cornered them in verse 4. He had them on the horns of a dilemma. If they said that it was lawful to do good on the Sabbath, they couldn't accuse Jesus of wrongdoing. That acknowledgement would have contradicted their rabbinic traditions while at the same time affirming his act of healing as acceptable. Okay, they're on that horn. On the other hand, if they claimed that it was lawful to do evil and to kill, they would have set themselves at odds with the Old Testament and demonstrated that they were merciless and wicked. That's why they kept their mouths closed. Because Jesus trapped them. He cornered them. They would be in trouble if they answered either way. And after looking around at them, verse 5, with anger. Now, Jesus' anger is righteous indignation. It's anger of a perfectly righteous and holy person. His in, in, he was indignant at their unbelief. In the Old Testament, God is shown to be angry at Israel's hard-heartedness. You can see that. And may, I, may I need to insert this. Jesus' anger, and this is the only place in the New Testament where he is specifically said to be angry, but whenever he was angry, it was holy anger. It's not like your anger or mine that can descend into sin, right? His was perfectly holy anger. God's anger is perfectly holy the next word here, in verse 5, it says, Grieved, Jesus was, at their hardness of heart. The reason he, Jesus was grieved, notice he's angry with them, but he's also grieved for them. It's because their hardness of heart was going to lead them to eternal damnation. You see in the person of Christ, a reflection of the Godhead, he, he was angry at their sin, their unbelief. But he didn't 
want to see them in eternal damnation. Now back in our text, in Matthew 12, after saying that to them, Jesus commanded the man, stretch out your hand. Notice, Jesus didn't touch the man. He just commanded him to stretch out his hand. And that withered, that atrophied hand was restored to normal like the other. You know what? Jesus just willed it. He just willed it. Can you imagine that kind of power? Just willed it and it was done. The Pharisees saw that. They were in the room and they saw this man's withered hand back to normal instantly. I would think most of y'all in this room have been bound down worshiping the Lord like mad. You say, wow, look at that. Praise his name. Glory. Hallelujah. That's what you'd be doing, not these folk. This miracle of mercy, divine power displayed, divine approval what he did. No, no, they didn't praise him, the Pharisees. No, verse 14, a conspiracy. A conspiracy. Notice it says, but the Pharisees went out and conspired against him as to how they might destroy him. In fact, Luke chapter 6, verse 11 says they were filled with rage. What? This man's, you've seen a supernatural act this man's hand is restored and rather than thanking God you're angry and want to kill Jesus you want to destroy him and you say well how could they do that I'll tell you how they could do it they hated Jesus they hated him because they were spiritually dead men Ephesians chapter 2 verse 1 they were dead in their trespasses and sins they were not born again from above. They were hell's agents. And you say, well, why would you say a thing like that about those religious people? Because Jesus did. <laughs> Amen. John 8, verse 44, you are of your father, the devil, and you want to do the desires of your father. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. Whenever he speaks a lie, he speaks from his own nature, for he is a liar and the father of lies. Verse 45, but because I speak the truth, you do not believe me. You know, they were of their father, the devil. Now, fascinatingly, these uh, Pharisees, their desire to get rid of Jesus was so compelling, so strong, that they sided to side with their own enemies. He said, we got to get rid of him. we got to kill him. So what they decided to do, according to Mark, verse 3, verse 6, it says, the Pharisees went out and immediately began conspiring with the Herodians against him as to how they might destroy him. The Herodians, they were the enemies of the Pharisees, but those two enemies decided to be friends because they had a common enemy, Jesus. The Herodians supported the Roman government. The Pharisees were against it, but they said, we'll set that aside because we got a problem. We want to get rid of Jesus. And you know what? They eventually got it done. 
what was wonderful about it, it was the plan of God to save sinners. He died to save sinners. Let me tell you something about these people. The truth about Jesus was clear to them. They had no excuse for their rejection of him. None. They had a flood of evidence. They could have come to him. In fact, they watched him through his ministry and they saw all that he did. They just had evidence piled upon evidence upon evidence. In A.D. 70, Titus, general, Roman general, came into Jerusalem and began to slaughter people, destroy the city, destroy the temple. Proverbs 29.1 says this about people who've had opportunity after opportunity after opportunity. They hear the gospel, they've heard it, they've heard it, they've heard it, and they said, no, 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 no. They reject Christ. They say, no. Proverbs 29.1 says this, a man who hardens his neck after much reproof will suddenly be broken beyond remedy. Hardens his neck, defies God's authority. He'll be broken, suddenly broken. What that means is the opportunity to repent is over forever. No hope after that. Suddenly broken. People die and hadn't planned on it. Suddenly they're in eternity. And they know there is no hope. It's over with. No opportunity to repent. Doomed. The problem with that kind of death is you don't know it's going to happen. That's why you better take the opportunity you have now. Come to the Lord while you can. When I was growing up, pastors and others used to say, Lord, save them while, come, they tell people, come while the blood is still running warm in their veins. Because when they die, it's not going to run warm any longer. Suddenly broken, cut off, dead, no hope. You have evidence of the Bible. You've heard the gospel. You know about Jesus. What are you going to do with him? What will you do with the living Christ? Don't be like the Pharisees come to Christ. Let's bow together in prayer. Our Father and God, we thank you for your word is truth. Thank you for saving us who are yours from sin and damnation. We pray that you uh, save those in this room this morning, this afternoon, who don't know Christ. Open their eyes. May they not resist your call. Say yes to Christ. Turn from their sin. And turn in faith to Jesus. Lord, we thank you that you're a Savior. You sent your Son. Came a man to die for sinners like us. 
bore our sin on the cross, died, was buried and raised triumphantly the third day according to the scriptures and is alive and willing to save any sinner who will come. You said, Lord Jesus, all who come to me I will in no wise cast out. May they come, come to you. We thank you for that. We thank you that you're teaching us who are saved, who've come, continue to build us up in the faith. May we be faithful to follow your will more closely. Glorify your name even more so as we do. We pray these things now in the name of Christ. Amen.